everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today I sit down with none other than Harry Hurst, co-founder and co-CEO of Pipe. Harry is a serial entrepreneur and technology enthusiast who has been building businesses since he was a kid in the UK, and most recently as the founder of Skirt, a fintech in the car rental space that was recently bought by Fair. Harry co-founded Pipe in September 2019 with the goal of offering SaaS companies a way to grow without diluting their current cap table by trading recurring revenue streams for as much cash as possible paid up front instantly. Investors come to Pipe to bid on these revenue streams and earn yield as an alternative to fixed income products, money market funds, and similar instruments. Pipe has been an amazing success story of the pandemic and just raised strategic equity from an all-star cast, including Siemens, The Raptor Group, Mark Benioff, Michael Dell, Shopify, HubSpot, 776, Slack, Republic, Chamath Palihapitiya, and more. In today's episode, Harry and I cover his journey to America and the allure of the American dream, raising $6 million from David Sachs in a 13-minute meeting, how Pipe works and his vision for becoming the NASDAQ of revenue, a Warren Fintech exclusive product roadmap teaser, how Pipe's incredible round came together, hiring during COVID and his concept of micro hubs, and much more. Let's get started. Harry, welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. This is an interview I've had circled for a long time on the calendar, and I'm very excited to welcome you to our show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So let's start by digging into your background and really interesting journey to Pipe. Though I and you know many of our listeners have followed the Pipe story over the last year, I didn't really know much about you until I started digging through your Twitter and, of course, your incredible episode on the Secret Leaders podcast. You were a scrappy, hustling kid from a young age, starting businesses and side hustles, graduating high school at age 12 and more. Can you tell us a little bit about who really was Harry Hurst at this time and what your younger years were like? So yeah, I, I think who I am as a person, it's it's really rooted in my upbringing. Um, I didn't grow up with money, but certain circumstances, they led me to be uh, being surrounded by people that did have a lot of money, which in turn led me to developing this significant amount of financial insecurity. But that's kind of what gave me the drive and determination to be successful. It's what really motivated me. And Interestingly, it was, it was always my father. Um, he told me from a very young age, two things. He told me that I should learn how to use a computer and how to learn Japanese. I don't know why, but that's what he always told me. <laughs> so fast forward, you know, 25, 30 years to today, I don't speak Japanese, but I did pursue computer science as a subject mm-hmm. and, and fell in love with it. And that was actually the subject that I was studying when I graduated high school early on. And I think, you know, what I fell in love with was the ability to just create something from nothing. I think that's what always fascinated me. And, you know, as I think about how that relates to what I do today, I think the sheer operating leverage that computing power gives to a company, I think that's what's mind-blowing as a whole. And then how you apply that to different industries. So for example, you know, fintech, which is the space that Pipe operates in, and, you know, as a result, I couldn't really imagine building something outside of the technology space. So, yeah, I would say from a very young age, 
I was incredibly motivated, but I was also a pretty insecure child, not only food and financially insecure, but always having that feeling that I just didn't fit in. But there's a happy ending to the story because, you know, again, fast forward 25, 30 years at this point in my life, I'm super grateful because I do have so many people at this point that I can call close friends. And I feel like they understand me for me. And, and that's been a real blessing. You know, you love creating something from nothing and this kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Looking through your background, I saw you had run teen nightclubs. You had these free magazine distribution services in London stations. How did these kind of side hustles start? And maybe could you dive into one in particular? Yeah, so there were a lot of businesses that I started before finally being able to move to America. And I'd always wanted to move to America. And we can dive a little bit deeper into that too. But with that in the back of my mind, that I was always working towards moving to America. All of the businesses that I started, even though I had a computer science background, they weren't necessarily tech-enabled or tech-forward businesses. They tended to be businesses that didn't require a lot of capital investment because there isn't really much of a, a venture ecosystem, at least you know, 15, 16 years ago when I was getting started in the UK. They tended to be businesses that were cash-flowing from day one, you're only sort of as good as your next deal type businesses. So I wasn't building any equity value in these companies, but that actually turned out to be a blessing in disguise because not only did it teach me how to run a business on scraps, which I think is great training before you enter a venture back business. I think there's lots of kids that are sort of handed, you know, four or $5 million pre-seed rounds without any idea of how to actually run a business. So I think having that core experience of actually Running a business from nothing really helps build a, build a sort of a healthier business. But it also made it really easy for me when I did finally get my immigration paperwork and the ability to move to America. When I was 24 years old, I had no real attachment to any significant business in the UK. So it allowed me to kind of just get up and leave and start my first venture back business. Do you want to ask about, you know, making your way to the U.S.? You know, my father was an immigrant as well. And as you said, he also just had this dream of always making it to the U.S. He came here in his late 20s and he has such a beautiful, idealistic view of the country still to this day. You know, what was the impetus for coming to the U.S. and how did America stack up to the expectations you had built in your head? Yeah, it's a good question. So, so it was, I became fascinated by the idea of the American dream which I think Hollywood marketed to incredibly to young kids overseas. And it's still probably a powerful marketing machine to this day. But I was fortunate in that my grandmother had moved to a beautiful place in San Diego and it was called La Jolla and it was a seaside town. And I was able to visit her a couple of times in my early teenage years. And I just absolutely fell in love uh, with the whole idea of the West Coast. And then as I progressed through my teens and started doing various different things to make money, whether, you know, all the cliches, trading on eBay and all of that sort of stuff. And as I thought about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life and my passion for computer science and wanting to build a business of venture scale that create real impact and be very meaningful in the world, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do that in the UK, unfortunately, because I just felt like the UK was just lacking this core venture ecosystem, this robust venture ecosystem. 
um, that at least I wasn't a part of. And I think it's improving to this day. And it's something that I'm passionate about. And I eventually want to be able to go back to the UK, at least part time to be able to kind of really give something back and bring the UK venture ecosystem on par with the US venture ecosystem. But to that extent, I always wanted and knew that I needed to be in the US in order to really truly achieve my dreams. So it took me, I would say about eight years or so of really trying because the immigration system is very, very difficult. It's not easy to come here. And I think, you know, as an immigrant, when you do finally get that paperwork and are able to, you know, legally work and build a business in America, you have this real sense of gratitude that every day is a blessing that you're able to be here for all the terrible things that go on in in the country. And every country has its positives and negatives. I think as an immigrant, you're able to put things to one side and just focus on the blessings that you've been given to be able to, to build as it relates to where you've come from. So I think I think that maybe is what you're alluding to with your father as an immigrant that I can really relate to, that he still kind of views the U.S. through kind of rose-colored glasses. So, yeah, I can, I can really relate to that. And so when you came to the U.S., you came to L.A., I believe, and there's this pretty wild story about being in a music studio and getting connected to Josh, your co-founder. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, kind of your first years in America and how you got connected? Yeah, so my first years in America were actually with Josh. So we, we met very serendipitously. I was here with a very close friend of mine who was actually a rapper um, and was signed to a U.S. label called Atlantic Records. And he brought me along to the music studio one night um, that he was here because Josh had a white Combinator-backed startup at the time that was in the big data music analytics space. And they had found my friend through their software and were sort of doing business development and wanted to meet him as an artist. And he, he said to me, Harry, I've got some computer geeks that want to meet with me and uh, I don't know what they want. Please come along and help me with this meeting. So I said, okay, that sounds interesting. You know, I was always looking to move to the U S and meet and network with tech folks. So it was a great opportunity for me. And lo and behold, that was where I met Josh. And I've always been the type of person that has taken the perspective that you should talk about your ideas that you have with almost everyone and get feedback and practice objection handling and evolve those ideas. Because I think you know it's execution over everything and ideas effectively should be open sourced amongst your peers. So I practiced what I was preaching there at the studio that night in that I had an iPhone full of, I don't know, maybe 50 or so, I can't remember, business ideas, all technology focused that I wanted to build one day with the right team. And I was pitching Josh, many of them, that night. And we just hit it off and clicked straight away. And one of those ideas that I pitched him was the idea for our first company that we ended up starting together. And that was a company called Skirt. And that was in August of 2014. And by October, just a few months later, and at the time, many, many Skype calls. Yes, people were still using Skype at that point. Many, many Skype calls later, I just dropped everything and moved into a one-bedroom apartment, slept on a mattress. And that one-bedroom apartment became a two-bedroom apartment and a three-bedroom and then a four-bedroom and then a house and then an office as the company evolved. 
And here we are seven years later and we're building our second company together. Follow up, do you remember what any of the other 50 ideas might be in, in case you have another $100 million company locked away in there? I remember quite a few of them, actually. One of them was effectively what TikTok has become. Any others? Or I mean, TikTok's a great one, <laughs> if only that business had stayed. Another one was a closed-loop advertising platform kind of in the grocery space, which is effectively what Instacart has become. And a lot of the logistics and operations for Instacart uh, are actually very similar to the logistics and operations uh, of our company, Skirt. But instead of delivering groceries, we were delivering cars. But the business model itself was much more centered around a closed-loop advertising network, and the kind of delivery of groceries was just the wedge in. So that, that was another idea that we had. Some great ideas and obviously some very successful businesses to spin out of there, such as TikTok and Instacart. So you ended up deciding on Skirt. For our listeners, what was Skirt, if they're not familiar, and kind of how did it evolve you know, with you exiting recently? Sure. So Skirt was at its core a fintech. Effectively, we were underwriting for the propensity of someone to steal a car. And that car was being delivered to them in a 30-minute window. So we had a 30-minute SLA. You would two taps on your app. You would upload your driver's license, upload your credit card, and a rental car would be delivered to your front door. So what that effectively created was the ability to own a car on demand. So on average, people were keeping our cars for, say, five or six days. And I say our cars, but they weren't actually owned by Skirt. It was a very asset-like model wherein we partnered with uh, fleet owners, large fleet owners in, in the U.S., everything, everyone from you know publicly traded rental car companies down to small dealerships that had you know oversupply of inventories just sitting on the lot depreciating. So it was this construct of connecting underutilized inventory to a new set of customers in a new demand format that weren't able to access mobility. So it, it was a really incredible company. We built that to 4,000 plus employees between full-time and part-time incredibly operationally complex business. And we built it to about $30 million revenue run rate before we were acquired eventually after three and a half years of building it uh, by a company called Fair.com. A great story in the, in the Secret Leaders podcast that I'll, I'll leave for our listeners to go chase after this episode. So I do want to get to Pipe, of course. So, you know, you eventually end up exiting and before you wrote a single line of code, for Pipe, you got $6 million in funding and, you know, a 13-minute conversation from David Sachs of Kraft Ventures and co-founder of PayPal. What was the impetus for starting Pipe and how did this conversation with David start? So I was introduced to David. Well, I was two degrees of separation away from him. Uh, I had a very good friend who remains a very good friend to this day called our team, Arab Shahi, and he is now the VP of strategy at an awesome company called Route. And he introduced me to Michael Tan. I was LA-based at the time, and Michael Tan is the LA-based uh, investor that works uh, at Craft Ventures, David's venture capital firm. So we just had a deck and a narrative. We, didn't, we hadn't written a single line of code, as you alluded to, and we were raising a pre-seed. And through our team's introduction to Michael, we did an initial call and then fast forward three days later, this is obviously pre-COVID, so people were meeting in person. 
this is uh, September of 2019, I want to say. And fast forward three days later, we're sitting in the office with David. Uh, and the legend is true. It really did. It was sub 15 minutes. He sat back in his chair and he said, okay, we're going to do this deal. And then it was, he made us an offer there and then. And we, we hammered out the details at his house in San Francisco that evening. And that was us. We were off to the races. And the impetus for even thinking about building Pipe and you know why we wanted to build this platform was there wasn't one aha moment, Ryan. There, there, it wasn't sort of like I slipped on a banana and came up with the idea overnight. It's really a culmination of both Josh, my other co-founder, Zane, uh, myself, and a lot of our founder friends, just a culmination of our collective experience, raising many, many rounds of equity financing and just noticing that there was this effectively arbitrage opportunity and inefficiency in the market, wherein SaaS companies, which was our initial go-to-market vertical that we focused on, were discounting 20 to 30% in order to get cash flow up front. And obviously, we all know recurring revenue companies, for the most part, trade a multiple of top lines. So it's very important to protect the top line. And my whole argument was that these customers that are willing to prepay annually are arguably your most valuable cohort and most committed cohort of customers that are least likely to churn over the long run because they're committed to paying you up front. So you're taking your most valuable cohort of customers and you're offering a significant discount to them, not just a discount to your cash flow, but a discount to your top line revenue and therefore a discount to your equity value. So it's a really significant cost when you add it all up and it culminates in a significant discount to your eventual valuation of the company. So you know, to take a step back, if we talk about what Pipe is, it's a trading platform for these companies with recurring revenues to turn their monthly or quarterly cash flows into annualized cash flows. So effectively, they're pulling forward their ARR, their annual recurring revenue from a cash flow standpoint. And what that allows them to do is to reinvest that capital into growth every time they spend money on, say, customer acquisition. And they can do that without taking on any more dilution than they need to and without having to seek out restrictive or even in some cases predatory traditional debt products like uh, venture debt or revenue-based financing, which you know in some cases are very appropriate solutions, but we felt that there was just a more efficient solution. But you know, at its core, Pipe's a platform that connects institutional investors that are seeking yield with a really, really, really strong, great asset that they're able to purchase. And that asset is the, the highly predictable recurring revenue streams, our global customer base. So we like to say that we've unlocked recurring revenue as an asset class, as a fully liquid and tradable asset. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's definitely a tagline I've seen many times. It's an awesome mission and such an interesting product. I do have one follow-up. How closely does this vision and, you know, what Pipe has become now match, you know, this pitch that you had with David Sachs? Has it, you know, really changed at all? Or did you kind of have this roadmap from the start? It's a great question. So when I think about it, from a macro level, we're solving for the same problem. But I think we're, we're doing it in a slightly more evolved way 
than our initial thinking, which was pretty high level, to be honest, because it was at the pre-seed stage. As I said, you know, we hadn't started building the product yet. Yeah. So I think the main difference fundamentally is that it's fully liquid, tradable on a platform now. We haven't quite figured out that piece at pre-seed. So, you know, again, we're solving for the same problem, but the way we're doing it now is just it's significantly more scalable. And it's by virtue of that significantly more transformative to financial services. And by the way, you know, that's in, in no small part a massive testament to um, the contributions of my chief business officer, Michal, who joined us just a couple of weeks after we closed that round with David. He brought a wealth of experience from his background as a co-founder of Funbox, his vision there coming in early and kind of educating us on the power of liquidity and the power of a two-sided platform really helped shape the way that we took the company forward from the beginning. So Harry, it's an awesome concept. I'm curious to see what the customer journey looks like. So first from the consumer side, let's say, you know, I run a software business and I want to list on Pipe. What does the process look like? So it's super simple. And, and I think, you know, that's what we're really going for, making it as easy as possible to, to onboard onto the platform and get direct access to capital markets. The customer flow is, you know, you go to pipe.com, you click get started, you connect your bank account, your accounting system and your payment processor. And I think, you know, depending on how fast you type, that's anywhere from one to two minutes in the amount of yeah. time that it takes to onboard. And then by the next business morning, we're able to qualify you, hopefully, for a trading limit. We're able to give you a bid price, which is how much the other side, the institutional investors are willing to pay in cents on the dollar for the full annual value of your contracts. And then you're able to have cash in bank the same day. So technically speaking, you can go from two-minute sign-up to cash in bank in less than 24 hours. And then from the institutional side, you know, you don't have to many names, but what would be a sample client of yours from the institutional side and what would their setup look like? Because obviously they, they're not necessarily setting up their bank accounts through the, through the platform. Yeah, I mean, the setup for an institutional investor is a little bit more cumbersome because they're obviously deploying significantly more capital onto the platform and, you know, they're institutional in nature. So there's all sorts of compliance and, and checks and balances that we need to go through in order to successfully onboard them. But We've onboarded over 100 institutions to date, and we've only been in market for about a year now. So we've had a lot of success there. And that's everyone from, you know, OCC and state chartered banks to hedge funds to insurance companies investing off the balance sheet. The world's really our oyster with respect to, to who we can put on the buy side of our platform. And I want to make clear, so if, if you know, a listener out here wants to list on the platform, you know, their company, their revenue streams, do they have to be U.S. domiciled or can they be anywhere? So today they can be anywhere in the world. We do business globally, um, but we only support U.S. dollar denomination trading. Multi-currency uh, support is, is actually next up on the roadmap. There's some, a sneak peek for you. So we will be unlocking a significant portion of our existing customer bases, revenues that are currently not tradable. But we do work with many, many companies internationally that are not domicile U.S., but have a presence in the U.S. And that doesn't have to be a physical human capital presence. That can just be a subsidiary, for example. And yeah, so maybe that's a Wharton FinTech exclusive that we can announce. That is announce. a Wharton FinTech exclusive. 
Multi-currency. Yeah. I love it, Harry. Thank you. That's a great bit of news. So Absolutely. Then I, Ryan, we, we really see this as a massive global opportunity. This is not mm-hmm. a U.S.-focused opportunity. This is, this is truly global. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to see where it goes. I mean, you've even called it the NASDAQ for revenue. And, and on that point, can you talk about kind of your broader vision for the company? You want to move to multi-currency. What does the NASDAQ for revenue look like for you? Yeah, so, you know, NASDAQ is for equities, right? So when I think about that analogy, NASDAQ for revenue, NASDAQ democratizes access for effectively anyone to be able to play on either the buy or the sell side of their exchange. That's made possible through various different originators, both on the sell side when you bring a company to IPO, and then on the buy side, you know, we see even down to retail consumer apps like Robinhood providing effectively upstream liquidity to exchanges like NASDAQ. So it creates this whole ecosystem around it. And at its core, Pipe is a trading platform and Pipe.com is an origination platform. So the way we see it is, you know, our trading platform is effectively originator agnostic in the long term. And Pipe.com is just one of those originators. But what's also really fascinating to us and where we see a big opportunity is actually to connect Corporate treasuries of companies that are overweight cash relative to their size and scale to companies that are underweight cash relative to their size and scale that want to invest that cash into growth. So it's really bridging the gap between those two companies and kind of cutting out a lot of the middlemen that are just taking excessive fees. So we we see an opportunity to create a much more efficient and aligned marketplace there. So last kind of nuts and bolts question here. Any crucial feature of a marketplace is good pricing, liquidity, and execution. But on pricing, how is Pipe thinking about this initial pricing of some of these streams, if at all? So the beautiful thing about Pipe is we don't think about pricing the assets. Pipe doesn't have any say or role, really, in pricing the assets other than to try and achieve better pricing for companies to increase their propensity to trade, because that's how we make money. We make trade fees. It's kind of like, to go back to the NASDAQ analogy, the NASDAQ have no control or really care what the price of different companies' equities trade for. They make money from trading volume. So if we think about Pipe in that context, we make money from trading volume. How do you increase trading volume? Well, you have a better price. So the way that we achieve that is by bringing more and more buy-side liquidity, so more and more participants onto the buy-side of our platform. And that creates this amazing flywheel effect because if you're able to offer better bid prices, companies issuing their subscriptions or contracts, recurring revenue streams for sale on our platform are more likely to trade if offered better pricing. So we're constantly looking to improve that price and create that flywheel where you know, more sell side liquidity increases the appetite of the buy side, attracts more buy side participants, increases or improves rather pricing. And then there you go. There's the circular effect. It's so exciting to think about because it's an asset class and a revenue model that more and more companies are taking on. And it's just growing, I think, every month. There was an interesting Twitter thread the other day where you asked, about what the most interesting use cases people could think of for Pipe. What are some of the most interesting ones that have stuck out in your mind? Some ones that I saw were, you know, creators, you know, streaming services, parking garages, and more. Yeah, so 
I think actually what, one of the most interesting ones that I've seen suggested on Twitter, I think it might have been in that thread that you're mentioning, but it's a common theme on my Twitter. Um, everyone thinks that we should partner with OnlyFans to help uh, the creators there. But, you know, that always makes me chuckle, that one. And, you know, we definitely could do it, right. hypothetically. Right, I'm just not sure that's our focus right now. But it could be, you know, to that point, it could be absolutely anything with a predictable recurring revenue stream. You know, we've seen people from property management companies that have predictable recurring fees uh, in the real estate space, streaming services, direct-to-consumer subscription, physical products. So it doesn't have to be software. It can actually be, you know, a monthly coffee subscription, for example. And even something like VC fund management fees. So we have uh, a lot of venture capitalists, whether they're investors in us or just, you know, connected to us, they're piping their management fees to, you know, diversify and bring forward cash flow. Now, going a little bit broader view, some people have said, again, I see this on Twitter as well, that there could be a looming VC crisis where founders, you know, chase an amazing seed or series A from, you know, top tier VCs. And then as you start, you know, working your way through the different fundraising rounds, instead of these massive series C's and D's that we see, they might be searching for more alternative financing rounds to avoid dilution. Do you have any opinions on how the fundraising dynamics, you know, might change over the next 10 years and the role pipe could play? Yeah, so I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. But it's worth noting here that you know, pipe, we don't view pipe in any way as an absolute alternative to equity. We actually think rather it's a, it's a great complement to equity. From the standpoint of equity, the way we think about it, at early stage, pre-revenue, pre-product market fit, you know, the stage that we we're at when David Sachs wrote us a check, you know, Pipe's not a good fit for that stage necessarily as it stands today. Rather, equity is perfect for that really speculative yeah. stage of company building. And then even as you scale and Pipe becomes a great tool in your armory, as you have predictability around your revenues and you can trade those revenues from cash flow, we think that the best use for Pipe in that case is to invest that capital into things that are highly predictable. So sales and marketing, for example, you understand what your CAC to payback period is, and you can bridge that gap by using Pipe and trading on the platform. But at the same time, you also have to, as you're scaling, make relatively illiquid, hard to predict the ROI of and payback period of investments into things such as, you know, an engineering team and expanding your product team and research and development. All the while, no matter the scale of the company, I think equity always has its place. And Pipe just kind of complements that equity offering um, and gives the founders and the companies a little bit more choice and a little, a little bit more leverage to be able to either negotiate better terms or just not take on as much equity or more than they, they feel they have to. So I think over the next 10 years, I think founders are going to have a lot more leverage and choice in the way that they finance their businesses. But at the same time, I really think that all the products that exist today, they're going to continue to exist in some way, shape or form. I just think the terms of engagement are going to evolve and they're going to evolve to be more favorable for companies uh, as we're able uh, and the broader community are able to better assess risk. It's really exciting that how much more founders are going to be empowered in the coming years. 
And of course, we can't talk about VC and equity deals without talking about Pipe's own incredible round. So for our listeners, Pipe has just raised $50 million from arguably the best syndicate in startup history. The list includes Shopify, Slack, Mark Benioff, Michael Dell, HubSpot, Okta, 776, and of course, modern-day celebrity Chamath Palahapatiya. What was this syndication process like, and how are you hoping to utilize this all-star cast, Harry? It was arduous. It took a lot longer to put together yeah. than you know, a typical round of, uh, say, you know, traditional VC funding. We were fortunate in that we didn't need the money, so we had time to choose the right partners. And that was the whole impetus of the round. We didn't want to just raise money for the sake of raising money. We really wanted to use it as an opportunity to bring together kind of the ecosystem power players that put us one degree of separation away from millions of prospective customers that could benefit from Pipe. And I think, you know, all the folks that you just mentioned kind of saw how they could add massive incremental value to their product offering and subsequently to their customers as a result of forming a long-term relationship and partnership with Pipe. And we're by no means exclusively partnering with with these you know, folks that are on our cap table, but it's awesome when you're putting in a ton of work into a partnership. And some of these partnerships you might may not see for years to come, but as we build these partnerships and the teams work so hard on them, having skin in the game and being really aligned and having them on your cap table, it really does make all the difference and, you know, really aligns incentives. So that was the impetus. And in terms of how we're trying to utilize this, you know, all-star cast, I mean, it would be impossible to give a blanket statement there. There's obviously so many different folks there and right. um, I have very you know, different relationships with, and they're, they're all incredible in their own individual rights, but there's no one way that we're going to work with each company, but we have a very strategic and specific idea of how we're going to work with each company that we've brought onto the cap table. So Harry, of course, with all of this money, comes a lot of growth, which means a lot of hiring. How are you thinking about hiring engineers and folks like chiefs of staff moving forward and building this team, especially during COVID? Yeah, so we've, we've been building during COVID effectively for the entire life of the company. You know, we publicly launched February 25th, 2020, and just a few weeks later, the whole world shut down as we knew it. So we've had to very quickly learn over the last year how to build decentralized, remote, distributed. So it, I think it's been a blessing in disguise with respect to how we've built the company because there's some incredible talent that we've been able to hire across the world, Europe, all different parts of America. Whereas I think we would have been totally open to that. But in our first year, if I'm honest with myself, I think we probably would have looked to build more centralized in California because that's just what we knew how to do. And I think a lot of companies felt that way. So it really allowed us to broaden our horizons and, and open up the top of the funnel for amazing talent globally. And we've built an incredible distributed team. And I think just because the world is going to go back to you know affording us the ability to create centralized office, more traditional work environments. I think the last year has shown us that that's not necessarily going to work for every company. I think for some companies, it makes sense. For others, a hybrid model makes sense. And I, 
And for others, I think they're going to stay completely remote. And I think that's fantastic that it gives everyone optionality. I think as it relates to pipes specifically, I think about this construct of micro hubs that form organically as a result of having organic clusters of really talented people cross department, but in the same geolocation. So for example, if we have, you know, several folks in a cluster in New York, it makes sense to stand up a relatively small but lovely space in New York for them to have the option to collaborate in person once it's safe to do so. And that is great for culture and also great for cross-departmental collaboration. So I think it's going to be a complete hybrid model. And, I, and then at the same time, I think there's going to be some areas of the business that are going to be more centralized. For example, sales. We have an awesome sales team that is centered in Atlanta right now. And I think they'll continue to hire people in the local area for the most part, uh, because there's something about being in sales and having that, you know, high energy, high octane environment where you're really driving each other and creating that competitive environment that lends itself well to having it in a centralized location. But other parts of the business, it's just totally unnecessary to do so. So we're just going to do what's best for, for each segment of the business. Completely agree. And I mean, I worked a couple of sales internships early on in college. You absolutely need that kind of competitive, jovial, collegiate atmosphere in the office. I think it makes a huge difference. And so, yeah. of course, the pipe itself and you are located in Miami. We had Mayor Francis Suarez on the show the other month. He certainly put the hard sell on the city. Miguel and I almost booked our next flight. What was the <laughs> impetus for getting to Miami? And is, is the hype real, Harry? So I actually moved here before the hype. I moved in September and I had decided to move in sort of July August time. That's before. When we refer to the hype, we're talking about the Twitter hype, right? Of course. Um, and I think that happened courtesy of Delian and the mayor having yeah. a back and forth tweet. And I think that was in November, December time that it started to blow up. But yeah, I was already settled in by that point. But the short answer is yes, it is real. The place is amazing. The ecosystem is burgeoning. And one thing I've noticed is that even though there's not as much of a concentration of tech workers um, and entrepreneurs in Miami on a unit basis. The network effects of the incredible people that have moved here, making a concerted effort to build community, that's been just incredibly strong. So I, I would argue that the network effects here are stronger than that of San Francisco at this present moment. But I don't think, and I, I really hate to see I really hate to see when this happens on Twitter, where people are kind of like judging where people choose to live and choose to build their businesses. You know, it's not, I don't think it's Miami versus San Francisco, New York versus LA. I really think it's whatever works for you. But yes, for me personally, for many reasons, given that, you know, I'm from London, I'm now closer to my family. This time zone makes more sense for the business that I do being in financial services and fintech with a lot of my investors based on the East Coast, it lends itself really, really well to me personally. And, you know, if someone thinks that it, it may lend itself well to them, I encourage them to, to come here and try it because, yes, the, the hype is real. I love to hear that. And, and yes, you know, on all social media, people are incentivized to create these narratives, the us first them, Austin, New York, San Francisco. It's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely exhausting. So, Harry, you have made it 
to the final round of the episode, which is the rapid fire question round. We've got, you know, about eight, 10 questions for you. Are you ready? Let's do it. Awesome. All right. So first one, what is a fintech company you most admire? Stripe. How about people you lean on in times of crisis? My brother. How about an easier one? How about funniest memory from helping run teen nightclubs? (laughs) Um, Getting shut down by the police many, many times. Now, another fun one. What is your favorite musical artist of all time? I know you have a big music background. Oasis, which is not a person or an artist. It's a group. It's It's a band. Arguably the best band of all time, but that's subjective. My dad's from Manchester, so we say Mancunian. So I grew up not only a Manchester City football fan, um, our football, which you call soccer, but I also grew up a diehard Oasis fan. And still to this day, I'm a, a huge, huge fan and pray every day that the brothers will get back together. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's ever happening. I, pray, I love Oasis too, love the Gallaghers. I don't see it happening. I, I've let that ship sail and let me be positive. Unfortunately, I tend to agree with you, but we can only hope. Yeah. All right. How about next one? Another thing that's always popular on Twitter, NFTs, overrated or underrated? Massively underrated. How about, I know you're a big fan of Bitcoin. What is your just kind of like five, 10 second pitch for Bitcoin? One word, hedge. Love it. And then last question, who would you most like to see next on the Wharton FinTech podcast? So it'd be a very dear friend of mine, George Busis, who's the founder of uh, an awesome company called Raise.com. And they just spun out another fintech-related product uh, slide. So I would implore you to bring him on. He's got an amazing story. And how about favorite question to ask someone in an interview? So it's not actually a question in so much as it's a a quick project I always ask them to do. And I I learned this one from my chief business officer, Michal Chaplinsky. It's a question he always asks, which is we turn off the Zoom for five minutes and they go away And I asked them to prepare very quickly in five minutes something that they can teach me that's completely not related to work, uh, something that they're truly passionate about. And it really gives you a sense of who the person is and how they think about things that they're truly passionate about. I absolutely love that. Do you have any favorites that people have given you? Yeah, I've been taught how to cook shrimp, but I don't eat shrimp. (laughs) That's a good one. Well, Harry, it was fantastic having you on today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I want to thank you for coming on. Very excited to share your mission and pipe with our global audience. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zouk. 